Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Welcome, everybody. We are in the fourth sermon in this new series called Uncommon Time, and we are letting these words of Karl Barth guide us. Karl Barth admonishes us to take our Bibles and then take our newspapers, but to read both, but always interpret the newspapers by looking first at your Bibles. And so I went looking through the news, through the newspapers, and I actually went this week looking for ridiculous criminals. And I'm happy to report I found three. All of these happened late in 2019. Uh, First of all, there was a woman in Wichita Falls, Texas, who has been banned from Walmart after she allegedly went on a wild ride on one of those electric shopping carts for hours while drinking wine from a Pringles can. So she's been banned from that Walmart. In Oskaluna, Oskaloosa County, Florida, a 13-year-old boy on vacation with his family in Tennessee stabbed his 15-year-old brother with a multi-tool just in the arm, telling deputies that he would rather go to jail than spend another eight hours in the car with his brother. So that was late in 2019. And then this one, a man stole a credit card and went on a shopping spree in Butler, Pennsylvania, and he was only caught because he kept signing the name thief on all of his purchases, kept signing the name thief. What is wrong with people? There are other things going on too, and in a more serious note, in Canada I noticed that you know, the land of the maple leaf, I, I noticed that they had lost $767,000 worth of PPE, personal protection equipment, protective equipment, come to find out it had been stolen in the hopes of kind of jacking up the market. But why would you steal those kinds of things? What's wrong with people? The stories that get me now have to do with, uh, well, lots of things, but I, I, I especially hate when prescription drugs that are, that are uh, life-saving drugs are priced out of the reach of the people who need them the most. What's wrong with people? There's human trafficking. What is wrong with people? I mean, just look around, look around. You can read your newspapers, you can read your screens, just, just look around. We have problems. What's wrong with people? Is it possible that we have underestimated this concept of sin? Now, I I don't seem to have any problem underestimating your sin if you were on the other side of a particular line from me. If I disagree with you somehow, I somehow can track the severity of your sin. But perhaps I underestimate the grip that sin has on me and maybe the the grip that sin has on everyone. If you take your Bible in one hand, and you take your newspaper in the other, you reach an inescapable conclusion that goes something like this. We have a problem. I I would submit that we have a real heart problem. Now, I've heard that before, too, and I see this on on Facebook at times, and I'm not going to go off on Facebook like I did last week, but I do see every once in a while someone saying, we don't have a racism problem, we have a heart problem. We don't have a poverty problem, we have a heart problem. Well... I don't deny that we have a heart problem. More specifically, I want to say we have a sin in the heart problem. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have better policy, better thinking, better decisions, a better climate. It doesn't have to be one or the other. In fact, I would say we have both. 
And if we really, if we really want to try to untangle from the sin problem, it will take more than just somehow a spiritual exercise, as important as that is. We have to do the other things that put skin and flesh on the good, the right kind of spirit. That said, we have a heart problem. More importantly, we have a sin problem. And even more importantly, we are in desperate need of a rescuer, someone to intervene, a savior. Which brings us back to the Apostle Paul and this book of Romans. I'm not going to go through all the other things that I've gone through the last couple of weeks. Just want to remind us that this is a letter written to the church in Rome that's experiencing some ethnic tension. Paul's trying to write to this bunch of people, trying to salve and and try to hopefully heal over some of these tensions and some of this conflict. I want to say to us also that we are still with the Apostle Paul, we're still dealing with his uh, theological backdrop, which always has to do with the Exodus, but tonight we're going to think specifically about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. As as a matter of fact, uh, we're going to sit here for a while and think through the implications of the giving of the law, what it meant to the people of God then, what it means to the people of God now. But we're also going to tell another story today that should be close to Paul's mind and close to to our minds too as we read Paul, and that is the story of creation. Paul takes very seriously what happened, the failure that took place in the garden, and we along with Paul will take very seriously the failure that happened where Adam and Eve are concerned there in the garden. A couple other notes before we start reading these very important verses and very confusing verses. Chapter 7 is the most intimidating chapter in the entire book. So here are a couple of things. When you read this terminology of the law, Paul is talking about the law, as in the Torah, that gift from God sent to help the people of Israel to know how to hold up their end of the covenant, how they would then embody the mission to which they've been called. Remember Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, I want to call a people who will then be a blessing to all of the peoples on all of the earth. Through this law, they would know how to make the heart of God and the character of God findable and tangible and touchable. So remember that when you hear this language of the law. He really is here talking about the Torah. Also, Paul will use this pronoun I quite a bit. But he's trying to make more than a point about himself. He's trying to make a point about the people of Israel, the people of the law, the people of the book, the chosen and commissioned people of God, the people who are at times faithful and other times unfaithful, the people who had not yet been able to accomplish the calling for which they had been set aside. So keep those two terms in mind and their meaning in mind as we work through this very difficult book. And we're actually going to start at the beginning of the chapter. And forgive me, I'm going to read to you a little bit before we get to our verses, starting with verse 1. Continuing his theme of trying to help explain the implications of baptism. And by the way, thank you for your, your feedback in last week's sermon. I would say this again. If you haven't been baptized, you need to. You need to be baptized It's not that God will love you anymore, it's that you will understand God more and understand the implications of your faith more. So still talking about baptism, still trying to give us another metaphor by which we can understand the implications of baptism. Verse 1, do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know Torah or know the law, that the law is binding on a person only while that person is alive, only during a person's lifetime. For example, a married woman is bound by the law 
to her husband as long as the husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now watch this. In the same way, my friends, you baptized folks have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you can belong to another, to the one who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Skipping down to verse six. We are now discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive so that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. Now Paul is again speaking to the ethnic and religious tension between Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles. Now, as you can see in Paul's letters and also in the book of Acts, these Christian Jews had drawn a line in the sand and they said to their Gentile brothers and sisters, you must obey every little bit of this law or else you don't belong and you won't belong with us or with God. And by the way, they were wrong about that. The Gentile Christians, and, and all Christians, by the way, and that's inclusive of us, don't belong because of the power of the Old Testament law, the Torah. It has no power in and of itself since it is merely a measuring stick that seems to constantly measure failure. Christians belong to God because of the grace of God, because of the heart of God, because of the intention of God, because of the extension of God in Christ. The law on its own is an instrument of death in that it measures deathliness, our helplessness, our hopelessness while in the grip of sin. I'll say this a couple times today. The law as we understand it, sure, it might curb your behavior, but it will never capture your heart. Verse 7. So then what should we say? That the law then is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law... I would not have even known what sin was. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, by the way, don't covet. But sin, sin, seizing the opportunity and the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Skipping down to verse 12. It's the problem is not the law. Paul says here, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Verse 13. Okay, did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. Again, Paul's gonna draw the target around the tar what is supposed to be targeted here. It's not the law, it's sin. It's sin working death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Verse 14, we know that the law gifted from God is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, says Paul, and Israel is of the flesh, says Paul, sold into slavery under sin. So, does that mean then that people are inherently evil? While there are some traditions who hold to that idea, we Wesleyans do not. And I and we don't think this passage supports the notion that we are inherently bad or evil. We are made in God's image. Look again in the garden, made in God's image, given the capacity to think and choose of free will, 
entrusted with the mission of God, given parameters for the work and the strict instructions to avoid the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, this is where we fail. Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Okay, you have, you've been given this entire creation to tend, to serve. You've also been given some parameters, and you've been given some very strict instructions. Please do all of these things, but don't do this one thing. You know how this story goes. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, he said you would die, you will not die. Here's the deal. God knows that when you eat of this particular tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. God doesn't want the competition. But doesn't that sound good, Eve? You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6 in chapter 3 of Genesis. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Made in God's image. Not created inherently evil. Made in God's image, but given the capacity of free will. The capacity to choose to sin. To choose the self. And humanity, given that capacity, chooses poorly. Humanity chooses self over God and health and the mission of God. The endless cycle of sin and death has begun, and there seems to be no off-ramp. Death and the fear of death gives rights to sin, which leads to death, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now watch this. In the same way as depicted here in the garden, in the wilderness after Sinai, after God gifted Israel the mission and gave parameters and strict instructions in the Torah, God watches as sin again warps their understanding of all of it. And they choose themselves over God and mission over and over and over again. And that's the sin working in them and in us. Uh, we say this a lot around here. Sometimes we have the unhealthy habit of remaking God in our own image rather than always living with open hands and open hearts and allowing God to remake us in God's own image. Christians, even today, have the capacity to make the Bible say what they want the Bible to say to fit their circumstances and political opinions. Even today, Christians have shown the capacity even the willingness to weaponize faith to get their way. What I'm saying is, things aren't all that different. Like what happened in the garden, like what happened in the wilderness, we still have this strange way of making faith about us and not about God and the other. In the wilderness, like in the garden, they had a calling, they had a mission, they had parameters. They had gifts from God, graces from God. And somehow, as they exercised their freedom to choose and choose poorly, they made it all about themselves. They warped the relationship. They warped the gifts. And at the end of the day, sin had won. Like Israel in the wilderness, 
We all too often forget the God who calls us to our Genesis 12 mission that we would be the chosen people of God through whom God would bless all the people of the earth. But hear me, it's not that we're born or created evil. Sin is evil. The problem is that we somehow can't seem to choose against it. It's as if I'm at war within myself. And now we're finally to the verses that Mindy read for us today. Paul says, okay, the sin that operates in my members, here's what, here's what the result. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. <laughs> Have you ever marched into a room knowing that there will be a difficult circumstance, have you ever said to yourself, self, I am not going to do this thing. I'm not going to do the bad thing. I am not going to give in. I'm not going to lower myself to this level only to perhaps five, six minutes later, do the thing. You and the Apostle Paul. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, then I agree that the law can be helpful and good, shows me how to move around. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, that does it, but it is sin that dwells within me, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot seem to do it. And if I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do is not what I want to do. If I do not do what I want, it's no longer I who is doing it but it's the sin that dwells within me. The problem is the sin. My friends, I would submit that we have underestimated the power of sin in our lives. Let me be more personal than that. I think I have underestimated the grip that sin has on me. Let me be even more personal. I don't think I am often enough desperate for rescue from sin. Now let me be super personal but kind of turn this around. I'm not sure you are either. Often enough desperate to cry out, Old Testament term for cry out is sa'ak. How often do you sa'ak cry out to be rescued from sin and the grip of sin? Verse 21, Paul says, John says, we say, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, Evil lies close at hand. Paul says, for I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Man, Paul is very clear. He is a scholar according to the law. No doubt Paul has actually committed to memory some of the Psalms that extol the virtues of the law. Psalm 19, Psalm 119, everything is good as it has to do with the law and I will wrap myself like a cloak, I will wrap myself in the law and I will sleep there and I will meditate on it day and night and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it will shape me for life. The problem is we now know, God knows, there is nothing in the law that intrinsically gives life. It measures failure. Does that mean it's worthless? No, not at all. But it is not a savior. The law should never be mistaken for rescue. It is not rescue. Legalists, the law is not 
never was, never will be rescue. Never will be. It was never intended to be the rescue. Measuring stick, but never rescue. If you have put your hope and your trust and your faith in the law, it is misplaced hope, faith, and trust. Sounding like the person who has put his hope in the law, Paul says, let's say at the top of his lungs, verse 24, wretched man that I am, so in the grip of sin, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now that's someone who understands his predicament. That seems to be an appropriate level of desperation. That is someone who has a shot against sin, not because somehow he's able to weaponize the law, not because he has become a legalist, even where his own life of faith is concerned, but he has a shot to be rescued from sin because he is reaching out for rescue. He recognizes, he recognizes that in his own baptism, he has been separated from his own connection to Adam and is now free to be connected to the second Adam, as he is described in Romans chapter 5, which is Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Just two days ago, I saw another story flash across my screen. This bride and groom are posing for their wedding photos, and it's a beautiful thing. The bride is wearing a glorious wedding gown. The groom is in a tux. You can see the photographer giving them directions as the happy couple pose on the rocks in Laguna Beach, California. They are oblivious to the danger that's coming their way. Oh my God. Then this happens. The couple is swept into the ocean. The guy recording the video stops and calls for help. Then he rushes back to the beach where the lifeguard has already sprung into action. First, he rescues the groom. The lifeguard leaves the groom with a flotation device, then with everything he's got, swims for the bride. The waves keep pounding them. They struggle to stay afloat and then struggle to get back to shore. From the cliffs above, onlookers watch in horror. Oh my they fall in the water. Another lifeguard arrives with a floating tube just in the nick of time. The conditions were dangerous. When they got swept off, our lifeguard was able to respond in a very rapid fashion. And uh, you've seen the video, of course, make contact with both of them and, and rescue them. The bride is so exhausted, she has to be carried out of the ocean to be reunited with her husband. May they have a long and happy life together after a wedding day filled with terror. So you take your Bible, you take the newspaper, and you interpret your newspaper having just read your Bible. Now, this week's passage being what it is, uh, this story, and I'm glad they both lived, because the story comes to me like a gift. I mean, you caught this, right? You and I, we are oftentimes in the New Testament understood as, described as, labeled as the bride of Christ. Much like the bride in the water, we are in a desperate situation. Especially as it has to do with the sin that operates in our lives, we are in a desperate situation. 
the waves and the current are going to carry us out to sea if not for the intervention of our rescuer. Now, in this case, it was not the groom. It was the lifeguard. In our case, to, to make the metaphor work here, it's the lifeguard that is playing the role both of groom and Jesus. We're in a bad way, in desperate need of rescue If you are trusting the law for that rescue, please keep this in mind. The law can try to offer life by curbing your behavior, but it will never change or capture your heart. When was the last time you cried out to God? I would imagine that this is a difficult question for really good people who, as a matter of habit, are not robbing banks, who as a matter of habit are not doing the terrible thing, who as a matter of habit are not terrible to their neighbors, but who, like the Apostle Paul, are hopeless and helpless against the current of sin. How often have good people, the people who I see on a regular basis lining these pews, How often are we desperate enough to sa'ak and cry out? When was the last time you reached out to God? When was the last time you were honest about your situation, that you were and are in a desperate need of rescue, and that God in Christ is your only, your last, your best hope? I have bad news You cannot overcome humanity's sin problem on your own. You remain in desperate need of rescue, whether you know it or not. But I have good news, sometimes understood as gospel, for you as well. Your rescuer is here. Hands extended and ready when you are. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I said this to you last week. We need to rehearse the posture that we're supposed to have, supposed to have coming out of the baptistry. And that posture is open hands and an open heart. Open hands can receive the gifts and the graces of God, and open hands are easier to rescue y'all. Open hands are easier to rescue. And I want to remind us of this phrase. I mentioned it last week. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Your rescuer is here. When's the last time you cried out? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we don't cry out nearly often enough. Perhaps, God, it's because we have worked so hard to remake you in our own image, to remake faith into something that benefits us and our side and our opinions.
Perhaps it's because we have trusted the law to rescue us when at the end of the day, the law was never even designed or meant to rescue us. It was supposed to help sketch out how desperately we are in need of rescue. God, we confess that we just don't cry out often enough. Perhaps we underappreciate each of us, perhaps all of us, and beyond this church, perhaps all of Christendom underestimates the grip that sin can have on us if we are unwilling to reach out, cry out in desperation, if we are unwilling to be rescued. God, we confess that we find this kind of confession difficult. We find it difficult to admit our desperate situation. Teach us, God, how to confess. Teach us, God, how to be appropriately desperate. Teach us, God, that you are always nearby, our rescuer. Now, church, I want to invite you to pray your own prayer of confession now. me to pray this prayer with and for you. May the Almighty God have mercy on you and forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen you in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit keep you, keep you in eternal life. I'd like to do that today as it has to do with baptism. I know not everybody's been baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. It won't make God love you anymore. It won't make me love you anymore. But it puts you in a better place. You need to be baptized. And a lot of us need to remember our baptism. And that's what we're going to do today. i just to like to, nothing real formal. I'd like to walk you through your baptism. In the hopes that if need be, you can recover the capacity to be moved from death to life, from clenched fists and hard hearts to open hands and an open heart. So let's remember baptism right now. You don't even necessarily need water, just, just remember, but pay attention to the, I guess you would call it, the posture of your hands as you remember. Unclench your fists as you remember your baptism. Maybe set stuff down. In fact, let go of your old self and all of the old stuff of your old way of life. I promise you God has something different, something more for you, for me, for us. And we are more likely to receive that something more if we are open-handed and open-hearted, not looking over our shoulders at our old lives of sin, death, and captivity. You belong to a jealous God. It's time to get rid of those old pictures. It's time to get rid of those old notes. 
It's time to get rid of those old flames. It's time to commit. It's time to give yourself away. It's time to remember your baptism. I love this little quote. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. God's mind about you is made up. Now what we need to do is to help one another make up our minds about God. So that by the time we get to work, so that, by, so that by the time we get to our Facebook pages, so that by the time we get to the streets, so that by the time we are standing in front of our mortal enemies who believe something other than what I do, and I'm right, so that by the time we get in front of our opposites and our irritants, we can still have the open hands and the open hearts necessary to embody the God we see in Christ. Y'all, choose your party wisely. It's fine, whatever you want to be. Be whatever you want to be. But be Christian first before you're a Democrat or a Republican. Because, man, that other way, it's unbecoming of the baptized. It's time to pray. I'm going to pray a prayer of confession before turning it over to my friend, Jason Smith, who will take us through prayers of petition, petition and intercession. But I hope that your hands are still open, your hearts as well. Open hands, that's a pretty good way to confess, to pray a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Oh God, you have freed us. You have freed us in the cross and in the resurrection from the tyranny of death from the inevitability of sin, you freed us. You are more than our Savior. You are and you seek to be our Lord. But we confess, God, that at times, like the people in Exodus 16, we still find this life perhaps a little too good to be true. Perhaps it is so unfamiliar that we look back over our shoulders and long for something more familiar. Perhaps we aren't quite ready to let go of the words that we can use as weapons, the ideas that we can use as weapons against the other. In other words, God, we confess that at times we live beneath our privilege as the baptized people of God. God, it's, it's baptism. You didn't miss. It's us. And so we confess. We confess that we again need the grace that we need every day. 
We confess that on this day we need the grace that we needed on the first day. We confess that we need the grace that we needed when we stepped into the baptismal pool. We need the same grace that lifted us out of those waters of baptism and into this new way of life. We need to be reminded that the only way to live into and up to our baptismal vows, the only way to do it is to allow you to lift us to those places by your grace, by your companionship and by your grace. In other words, God, help us to know how to pray. Help us to know how to read scripture. Help us to know how to talk to one another. Show us the priority of worship and service. In other words, God, help us to find all of these disciplines and habits and practices that remake us for this new world that you have already kicked off in the resurrection. We confess, God, that we are not always good citizens of the new world that you have provided for. We confess and say right out loud with our hands and our hearts open, we need you to come to us again. And now church, if you would, pray your own prayer of confession in these quiet moments. for all of us hear this prayer may the almighty God have mercy on us forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ our Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit keep us keep us in eternal life